this is John W. Henry. While parting of ways is not taken lightly, today signals a new direction for our club. Our organization has significant expectations on the field, and while Hyam's efforts in revitalizing our baseball infrastructure have helped set the stage for the future, we will today begin a search for new leadership. Everyone who knows Hyam has a deep appreciation and respect for the kind of person he is. His time with us will always be marked by his professionalism, his integrity, and an unwavering respect for our club and its legacy. Sam, Sam, how'd that sound? That sound good? Sam, I haven't been to Fenway in a long time. Can you go on a tasty burger run? Yes, I want the, ta the big tasty, and on the side, I want the 50-50 fries and rings, and a chocolate shake. Sam, Sam, on the burger, I want extra pickle, extra onion, extra mayo, mother. Those sons of bitches, they finally did it. The Boston Red Sox have relieved Hyam Bloom of his role as the chief baseball officer. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 24 of the Fenway on Fire podcast. No beverage of the week today. Um, although you could be forgiven for celebrating with uh, a high-end bottle of your choice. Um, so it was interesting today uh, getting the news that Haim uh, was like, I was actually on the phone, and then uh, it, I got off my call, then I, I had a text, and all of a sudden I just went down the wormhole of social media finding out what exactly happened, what's going on. And, you know, you know a lot of people were happy. I even, you know posted like a, a tweet of like a, I'm still calling them tweets not X's or posts or whatever so I posted something you know like VE day you know the soldiers waving the, you know their flags and the hats or whatever and that that's not really how I felt um, so the interesting thing is the last four years and look, fans of other teams they don't want to hear Red Sox fan complain about you know the, the direction of the team and success or lack thereof or whatever I get it point taken but the last four years, since Dave Dombrowski was let go, was fired, it's more or less been one disappointment after the next from the Boston Red Sox. Even 2021, the deadline was a disappointment. The postseason was a disappointment. The 2022 offseason, you know, when you ideally would want to build upon the 2021 season, massive disappointment. So... The last four years had me conditioned to just expect more of the same. Expect one shit sandwich after the next. So I didn't believe that High and Bloom was the guy to, to build the next World Series team here in Boston. And I'm going to talk about I've been talking about it. We're going to talk about it today, certainly. This is the time to do that dive. But I, I, I wasn't happy because, you know, it, the, the Bloom supporters, and look, not everybody who supported the job that Heim Bloom did is a quote unquote I Bluminati. You know, that's kinda like the sarcastic, snarky, delusional, toxically positive lunatic French. I'm not talking about those, but there were people that have brought up some quite valid points on the Bloom tenure. And really the big one is 
a lot of what's gone wrong either wasn't his fault or probably wasn't his fault. And, and we're going to talk about it. Um, and actually, a lot of the coverage and a lot of the chatter feels like it's focusing on that aspect of it. You know, if you own a business, you can fire everyone. You can't fire yourself. And I think after 12 years after Theo left, where this organization has just gone from one extreme to the next, you know, two baseball presidents, three general managers, I'm calling them GMs, not their stupid fucking made up titles. And just kind of just this chain constant, just upheaval. It's been upheaval. Six last place finishes, you know, surrounded by or surrounding three American League East titles and one world championship. I mean, one fluky wild card run to the ALCS. It's been jarring. It really has been. Um, and the big thing that I've always tried to impress on this show is, or try to separate, is the fact if I disagree with how Haim has run the Red Sox, that it's not personal, and that I don't think he's a bad person by any means. I think he's actually, by all accounts, a really good guy. And you're starting to see the stories come out. You know, that, you know, like there was a quote from Justin Turner that after he got hit in the face in spring training, Haim visited him every day. And the media, you could tell the people who covered the team really liked him. And Ian Brown uh, from ML, uh, MLB.com said that Bloom and Ian Brown's covered the Red Sox since, I think, MLB.com started. So the early 2000s, late 90s. He was even here for Duquette. Said Bloom was by far the most accessible GM the Red Sox have had. And it's true, like especially going into this year when I started doing this show and I was trying to keep up with all of Bloom's podcast appearances. It got got to the point where I literally couldn't keep up. You know, he was willing to give, you know, you know podcasters, reporters, etc., time and to explain what he was doing or try to explain what he was doing. And he knew this; these were the conduits to the fans because he wanted the fans to see what he was doing. Um, even if at times maybe it was a little jargony or what have you, he did care. And I think his heart was in the right place. But at the end of the day, I, in my opinion, he wasn't the guy for the job. Could he have been if he had another offseason where you know, they allowed him to spend more money, go over the luxury tax? Could he have done it? We'll never know. We'll never know. You know, certainly, you know, some of the, some of his more vocal supporters, who I've been critical of on this show, will you know operate under the assumption that you know he would have had this amazing off season and would have you know built the next baseball juggernaut. But again, we'll never know. But the big thing, the first thing I want to talk about is how much ownership really did let High and Bloom down. So, a of all, the most obvious is the Mookie trade. Um, you know, basically hiring a guy telling you. Telling them, okay, you have to get under the luxury tax. When really the only way you could get they could have gotten under the luxury tax immediately was to trade Mookie and attach David Price. Because that's the other thing too is we all hammer the return on the David Price trade. It wasn't nearly good enough, but what dragged it down was attaching David Price and half of his salary. So that was always always shameful by Red Sox ownership, who a should have signed Mookie before I even got here. You know. That's another one of these things where that the Red Sox have done over the last 20 years where 
Nobody knows who to blame is. Was it ownership? Was, how much of it was Dombrowski? Could Dombrowski have done it earlier? And then by the time Mookie was an MVP winner and it was clear he was going to need a two to $300 million contract, then it's an ownership deal, you know, decision. How much did ownership drop the ball? It was always shameful. And one of the things I, I said at the time was the day they decided to trade Mookie Betts, they punted the decade of the 2020s. Now we're at the end of 2023. The Red Sox are fighting for last place or fighting to stay out of last place again. And your guess is as good as mine. Who's going to pitch for this team next year in 2024? Um, they have some intriguing young pieces. Haim undoubtedly did well you know, with the farm system. You know, I think these farm rankings, people get too hung up on them. You know, in the Red Sox case, that ranking is propped up by a lot of guys who might make the majors but probably aren't going to make an impact. I mean, out of players under team control. So uh, Kylie McDaniel uh, recently on uh, ESPN.com, actually it was last week, had a column um, breaking down the core of every major league team. Now, he defined a core as players that were under team control or under contract through 2025. So people you have for the long term. That includes you know major league players under contract, but also minor you know young players you know not eligible for free agency yet, and also minor leaguers. So, you know the Bloom supporters, the Ibluminati, they keep talking about this elite young core, best young core in baseball. Well, Kylie McDaniel rated the the Red Sox core as twenty fourth, yeah, twenty fourth in baseball. So, the only above av- the only exceptional player. He had was Devers, didn't have any above average players. Um, and then he had a whole boatload of you know players he listed in the quote unquote solid category. I don't have the column in front of me. Um, I'll have to reference it in the show notes. Um, and you could quibble. I, I, I think McDaniel was low. I think you know Tristan Casas and maybe one or two other guys could easily put in that above average bucket. But then there were some guys listed in the solid bucket, like uh Luis Arias, who I think's you know more likely going to get non-tendered this off season, so you know a little bit of give or take there, but you know there are pieces here. I don't see a championship core, at least not yet. And whatever this farm system does develop, you know if Marcelo Mayer is the next Corey Seager, you know, as it is right now, if you had to look at the young shortstops in the American League East, you know call it twenty-five and under. Bo Bichette clearly number one. Wander Franco would have been number one or number two if he, you know, could have allegedly stayed away from underage girls. Don't want to make light of that situation because that's fucking horrible. Um, and then number three, Gunnar Henderson's going to win Rookie of the Year. At this point, you have to take him over uh, Mayer. You know, maybe Mayer has a higher ceiling. I, I don't know. It's hard to, you know, hard to, um, you know, knock the presumed Rookie of the Year. And then Jackson Holiday was drafted a year after Mayer. It's already passed him. He's in AAA. We'll probably get to the big leagues ahead of Mayer. Now, his shortstop defense is a little bit rough. You know, Jackson Holiday, Matt Holiday, son, drafted number one overall by the Orioles, just uh, to clarify for the audience. You know, if you asked anyone today who would you rather have, Mayer or, or Holiday, they're, t- they're taking Holiday. So Mayer is at best fourth, the fourth best young shortstop in the American League East. And then you're, you're talking about Anthony Volpe. Volpe's a year older, already in the majors, had an, an up-and-down rookie year. You know, good glove, good base running, some pop. Average in OBP was a little low. But, you know, is Mayer going to be in the big leagues next year? 
Struggled a bit at double A. You know, might have been the shoulder injury. He had that caused it. But is he a lock to be in the big leagues next year? You know, Mayor, we might not see Mayer until 2025. It's a possibility. So you could even make the argument maybe you take Volpe over Mayer. Probably not, but it's a discussion. So uh, yeah, I'm being a little, a little sidetracked there. But, you know, some of these young guys, and, you know, we'll, we'll talk, we'll you know, go deeper in it on a future episode. They have some intriguing pieces. But with the, the job that Bloom has done handling the Major League roster, it's perfectly valid to question, was he the guy to take what the farm system is producing and supplement it? Especially if it needs to be supplemented with another big-ticket foundational piece. Um, but getting back to ownership. So Sam Kennedy kept trying to sell this team as a contender. Um but in reality, it was a rebuild, a rebuild that nobody had the guts or the balls to actually call a rebuild. Um, you know, they still, they wanted their cake, they being Red Sox ownership. They wanted their cake and to eat it too. They wanted Bloom to, you know, focus on the farm system, but they still wanted to win at the major league level and they wanted to cut payroll. That's not easy. Not easy at all. And even after the deadline, I remember the Dodger series or, or it might have been Kike's bobblehead night. I think that's what it was, which was after Kike was traded, after the deadline. This team was barely clinging to wildcard contention. And I remember, um, you know, they were talking about to, to Sam Kennedy in the Nesson pregame show about, you know, the Kike bobblehead night. And he, the last thing he said was, well, maybe we'll see Kike, you know, in October. Really, Sam? Really? I mean, at that point, they, they were hanging on to the wildcard race by their fingernails and you're going to throw out. Yeah, maybe we'll, 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 we'll overcome the odds win the, the wild card, the third wild card. Then we'll win the wild card round. Then we'll win that best of five division series. Then we'll win the best of seven ALCS against teams that are all better than us. And then we'll see Kike in the world series. Like really, Sam, really does anyone think, did anyone think at that point that that was at all realistic? And that's a very, very small thing. I don't know how many people watch this in pregame show and postgame show. People barely watch the games anymore. But, you know, ownership, and Sam Kennedy in particular, kept talking about wanting to contend, wanting to contend, wanting to contend, while they're spending less money, staying under the luxury tax, not making any prospect trades whatsoever to help the big league club in four years. So by doing that, A of all, I think a lot of people just saw through it for the bullshit that it was. But also, it is putting pressure on a guy who you hire to rebuild the farm system and who's struggling and who was probably in over his head from the beginning. Didn't help him at all. Um, and then the big thing is the, play, is the payroll and the and contract. How much flexibility did High and Bloom have? The only medium ticket item or contract he made was Trevor Story, which today it's been a complete fucking disaster. Why did, hasn't he done more? Could he have done more? You know, after last season when Bogarts, Avaldi, JD, basically all the good players from the 21 team were free agents going after 22, they had $100 million in space under the luxury tax that Bloom spread around. You know, some moves were better than others. Still holes on the roster. Could he have made a big move last year? 
Could he have made another big move when he did the Trevor Story move? If they were going to let him go over for Trevor Story, could he have gone over for a Kevin Gosman or any starting pitcher you know, better than Rich Hill or Michael Waka? We don't know that. I mean, it's assumed that he couldn't. Um, but really one of the kind of the narratives that's really, that's, you know, getting, um, you know, pushed by the Bloom defenders and not just the iBloominati people that, you know, in good faith think Haim got a raw deal was that he was brought in to be a fall guy. And you know what? If people feel that way, I'm not going to argue. I mean, this is a guy who was brought in. The first thing he had to do was trade one of the two or three best players in baseball. Yes, he got hosed, but he had very little leverage. Um, and and then the payroll constraints he worked under, you know, 21, nobody thought that team going into 21. I ripped Hyam going into the, the 21 season. I thought that off season was not very good. Um, but he proved me wrong in 21. The moves he made, more of them worked than didn't. And they went on that improbable run. And, and actually, also, one thing people don't talk about enough with that 21 season is the Red Sox were really, really healthy. I mean, for example, they got the healthy season of Nathan Avaldi's career, and he was top three, top four in the Cy Young. And coming out of that COVID year, the rest of the league was ravaged by injury. So the Red Sox had a little bit of luck. And that's not to take anything away from Haim or Cora or the players or anything. I mean, luck happens. And that's another one of my takeaways from the Blue Mara is one thing I will not miss and that I, I hope to miss is just the constant, every game, every inning, every decision, everything that happened was either an indictment on or a, what's the word I'm looking for, confirmation of, an affirmation of the front office. It got exhausting. You know, every game was about the direction of the franchise. I I just want to watch baseball. I'm just so fucking sick and tired of it. And I know this show contributes contributed to it in a very small way. Um but I you know, I we we need to move on. I hope we can move on. Hopefully with the next chief baseball officer, GM. I want him to be called a GM. I'm sick of these stupid titles. Hopefully we as fans can do that. Because really, that's this season, more than anything else, it's just been a grind. Just the constant back and forth. I'm done with it. I really am. And, you know, so ownership did bloom no favors. But this is going to sound like I'm I'm fence-sitting here a little bit. But it is the truth. There are at least 10 to 15 owners in Major League Baseball that are inarguably much worse than Fenway Sports Group. I mock John Henry every episode on this show. So do not call me a Henry apologist, an FSG apologist, a Sam Kennedy apologist, because I am not. But you, you know, for all their faults, you'd rather have him than Bob Nutting, who owns the Pirates. You'd rather have him than the Angelos family in Baltimore. You would rather have him than uh, Dick Monfort, that miserly weirdo who runs the Rockies. You'd rather have him than John Fisher, who turned into the real-life Rachel Phelps owning the A's. Uh, the Castellinis, who own the Reds. You know, the idiot son who keeps saying that, you know, what do you want to do? You know, we don't spend money. Who's going to buy the team? Who are we going to get? And then had that presentation about how it was impossible for his team to compete. Clowns. You know, most sports sports owners are clownish. So, 
you know, a lot of where this team is, most of the blame should be on ownership. A lot of it. Um, and, and I was ta- talking to someone today too. Um, you know, they, they were under the assumption that Red Sox fans blamed High and Bloom gave, gave him all the blame for the Mookie trade, all the blame for the payroll. And I think most fans at least put a portion of the blame, if not the the, the majority of the blame pie, give that to ownership. So. In terms of what was High and Bloom's fault, so Kylie McDaniel, who I just referenced um, last week, rated the Red Sox core 24th in Major League Baseball. I had a call him today after the Bloom hiring. You know, I think it was fair. Um, he, he he did defend Hyam. One of the things he said was, you know, who's going to want this job if you know, which is, you know, again, you know, if you're going to. If you're almost a lock to get fired in four years, if you have other options, why would you want to work for John Henry? And he, he talked about, you know, doing those three things. And Jeff Passan in another interview talked about it's not easy to compete the major league level, build up the farm system, and cut payroll. So not easy there. Um, but in the McDaniel piece, he kind of breaks down the different moves that Bloom made. Said eh, most of these aren't that bad. Which, if you look at it that way, I, I get how you can arrive at that conclusion. But most of Bloom's failures were errors of omission, not commission. Let me explain. It's easy to, to say, okay, well, this move... The, it's more the moves that Haim didn't make, is what I'm trying to say. Like in 2022, not getting a first baseman. Trading Hunter Renfro and not getting a right fielder. So if you look at just the, the moves coming in, well... Jake Diekman was bad, but he didn't cost that much money, and they traded him. Okay, but you're not—you're missing what he didn't do. And this year, clearly, what he didn't do was the starting rotation. I was right about that from the very beginning. I was on it from the very beginning. The starting rotation wasn't good enough, and you know what? They had a little bit more depth than I thought. Um, you know, they had guys like Chris Murphy, who was awful in Worcester, came up and actually pitched pretty well in the big leagues for a period of time. You know, Brandon Walter even had his moments. You know, some of the guys like Bernardino pitched well. And some of the Bluminati kind of fall over themselves like, oh, it's a brilliant find. Like, if they were around in the Dan Duquette days, some of these people would have been, you know, fetting, you know, Dan Duquette for, you know, finding Dwayne Hosey and signing Troy O'Leary. You know, a lot of these are moves that a good executive should do. So, you know, yes, Haim deserves credit, but it doesn't make him a genius that he, he got Brandon Bernardino off waivers. Um, but yeah, it's just, that's my thing. It's just the, the glaring holes. Like, like every year, it's just like, you can't even find like adequate big leaguers for certain positions. This year it was shortstop and second base. Oh, but getting back to the pitching, I got sidetracked. So, you know, all year I was waiting for kind of the, the bubble to burst on the pitching staff. They held it together longer than I thought. They got a good month of May out of Chris Sale. They got a good six weeks out of James Paxton. Some of these guys who were pitching badly in Worcester actually pitched half-decent in Boston. And it really wasn't until the Kyle Barraclaw game that they ran out of pitching. You know, that was, if you remember. So the day before, they let Chris Murphy wear it um, in a losing effort to save the bullpen. That was a Sunday. Then Chris Murphy got sent down. And then that Monday, Chris Sale started. They go into the game. You know, needing six innings out of Chris Sale, he only went four and two thirds. So then they go to Kyle Barraclaw. He gets out of that fifth inning. Red Sox take the lead in um, the home half of the fifth. 
Barraclaw goes out for the sixth upper run and just gets his face ripped off. And they let him finish the game throw like 95 pitches. He gave up 10, 11, 12 runs, whatever. And it turned into a bloodbath. That was just, that was jarring to watch. It really was. Um, you know, this is probably not a, a, the best metaphor, but I compared it to um, the boxing match from the 60s. Emil Griffith versus Benny the Kid Perrette 3. If you're a boxing historian, you know that um, that fight, um, Emil Griffith punched Benny Perrette 27 times unanswered. And uh, Benny Perrette had a brain bleed and died the next day. Uh, not the best metaphor, but really that's what it looked like, though. I mean, they just let him out there to get pummeled. And they did it because they didn't have enough pitching, which was the problem all along. So the farm system undoubtedly, Bloom, has done it. Well, he's done a good job to this point. See, my thing with the farm system is instead of looking at the rankings, I try to look at individual players and see, okay, who do I think can help the big league club? And they have a few guys who do. Now, in terms of the young players in the organization, either rookies or in the system, I don't know where the next 6-7 win player is, the next player who could be a perennial all-star, an MVP candidate. Maybe Casas? Maybe? He's had a great second half. Still swings and misses a bit. You know, Maybe he can be Matt Olson. I don't know. Um, you know, Mayer, you know, I need to see him hit a double-A, triple-A before I proclaim him the next Corey Seager or Greg Amsinger said, uh, compared him to a young Chipper Jones on MLB Network today. I don't, I'm not there yet on him. He has a chance, maybe. You know, Roman Anthony, he's rocketing through the system. You know, we'll see what he looks like, you know, double A, triple A. But I don't know. And none, 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 nobody else knows. Even, even the Red Sox don't know. You know, that's why Bloom loved using the word bets. He's making bets. He's betting on these young guys. And, you know, the problem is you, you wait for these young guys. You know, we waited how long for Tristan Casas? Well, Bobby Dahlbeck, you know, killed you in 21, really killed you in 22. And now we did the same thing at shortstop. So, really, you know, I, I think this is an example of the Peter Principle. That's when someone is promoted or gets a job one level above their level of competence. You know, High and Bloom, I think, is perfectly qualified, competent, exemplary at building up a farm system. Player development, I think he's excellent at that. Running a major league roster, too many mistakes for me to have faith in him. Too many. Um, that 2022 offseason, I, I, this is not just me you know, speaking off the cuff. I've put thought in this. I think that offseason might be the worst offseason any Red Sox executive has had that I can remember. You know, I wasn't around for when, you know, they let Carlton Fisk and um, Fred Lynn go. You know, in hindsight, Theo's 2021 offseason was also a disaster. But 2022, so you go from ALCS to last place, and a big part of it was Haim's horrible offseason. Going with Jackie Bradley as the opening day right fielder. Couldn't even get Jackie Bradley a platoon partner. Christian Arroyo, a second baseman who had never played the outfield before, was the right-handed platoon partner to Jackie Bradley. I mean, if you are ostensibly trying to improve upon an ALCS team, an Arroyo-Bradley platoon was never good enough to begin with. 
But the fact you had a guy who had never played the outfield, he got a couple games in spring training, it was a short spring training that year, and then as soon as the game starts, he's losing balls of the sun left and right, and the struggles in the field led to struggles at the plate, then he got hurt. Um, Brian Barrett on Off the Pike, he did a 20-minute monologue on, th- on uh, Haim and all of the litany of mistakes he made with the Major League roster. So I encourage everyone to check that out. I'll link to that in the show notes. And then that 2022 deadline, you know, where they're kind of in it, kind of not, and he middled it. You know, the additions, Hosmer and Pham, weren't, were never going to be enough to move the needle. You got a couple players for Christian Vasquez. You know, pissed off the clubhouse. He traded a guy who had been in the organization for 13, 14 years. The players he got back, Abreu, I think, can play a little bit. I have concerns about his swing. His swing looks pretty long. He's never been a high average guy in the minors. Like He's like a 240, 250 hitter. He's very patient at the plate. He puts up good on base percentages. You know, my concern of him as a regular is, you know, how long until, you know, major league pitchers, A, take advantage of his passivity at the plate, B, just start pumping him with high heaters and taking advantage of that long swing. So I, I think his floor is probably fourth outfielder, maybe a starter. I mean, okay pickup. I'm not ready to put him in Cooperstown yet. And Manuel Valdez has no position. I don't think he's... I think he's an end-of-the-bench guy at that, but it's hard to be an end-of-the-bench guy in uh, 2023 if you can't play defense anywhere. So that deadline, I mean, Ken Rosenthal has ripped that deadline from pillar to post. I mean, not not too many people more respected it in the game than him. And then last offseason, you know, individually some of the moves were worked out. Love Justin Turner. I mean, that's a guy who he should have been on this team when this team was actually good and relevant. I mean, if you if you plucked him onto, he looks like he looks like he was on the 2013 team, and then was frozen and defrosted ten years later. He would have fit in perfectly on the 04 team, the bunch of idiots, the 07 team. In a lot of ways, he's kind of like Mikey Lowell, or just that solid pro. I mean, when I was at the um, the game, uh, the Dodger game, when Mookie came back, his first game back, talking to Dodger fans about JT, he's the, an example of one of those guys where. You have to watch him every day to really appreciate what he does. So, great move. Adam Duvall worked out. You know, Corey Kluber was god-awful. So, I mean, there were some good, some bad. Masataka Yoshida, you know, I have concerns just because the production has tailed off as the season has gone on. The walk rate has cratered as the season has gone on. My concern is pitchers could keep pumping, pumping him with fastballs, pumping him with strikes because he's not making them pay. He's not driving the ball. So if he's a medium-average, low rock walk rate, low slug DH, eh, I mean, he's not killing you. I'm not ripping the signing. You know, A mild overpay for the Red Sox shouldn't be a problem, which is what it was. But a mild overpay becomes a problem when you're trying to stay under the luxury tax and you're you know, 7 $8 million under it. So an okay-ish offseason, but the thing is, none of those moves were going to make the Red Sox contenders in 2023. And if that's what the front office really thought they were going to do, what are you doing? And that gets to my earlier point where if they were so gung-ho on rebuilding this farm system, maybe they would have been better off just doing a harder rebuild. Trading you know, some of the, the core guys a little earlier, getting a little bit more, pushing this thing along a little bit more. But 
again, looking at the trades, Alex Spear wrote a column last summer about uh, Bloom's prospect returns in a lot of these deals. These returns pretty underwhelming overall. I was looking at uh, the Sox prospects top 10. I think Willier Abreu was number 11 or 12. So you've traded, you know, Betts, Benintendi, Vasquez, you know, a few other guys, you know, Hunter Renfro. So you made all these trades to trade guys off the team for prospects, and none of them are in your top 10. You know, some of them graduated like Connor Wong, but Connor Wong was never a top 10 guy. Jeter Downs was a top 10 guy, but he flamed out. So, you know, yeah, maybe a harder rebuild would have sped things along, but if Bloom, you know, wasn't getting good returns of the prospect trades he did make, you know, who's to say he would have gotten more? And then this past deadline where he did nothing, that that seemed to be the final straw where, you know, reportedly he had a chance last deadline to get off the Chris Sale contract. This deadline he asked ownership to trade some veterans. They thought he, they were going to trade. They thought he was going to trade some veterans, be that Paxton, Justin Turner, whoever. And he did nothing. So really, I think that's where the you know ownership really lost faith in him. Because you know when when you're the number one guy, you have to be able to make the hard decisions. How many hard decisions did 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 Hyam make in four years? You know, trading bets was a hard decision, but that decision was made for him. I mean, he decided on who, where to trade him, and what to get, and that didn't work out. You know, maybe trading Benintendi was a hard decision. Maybe, you know, Benintendi was horrible in the COVID season. I. W- was on board with them trading Benintendi till I saw the return. So I guess maybe that was a hard one. Vasquez, kind of, I guess. But like big, hard, franchise-altering moves. How many of those did Haye make? It was just can-kicking, really. You know, hoarding, hoarding kids and kicking cans down the road. And this team is not without concerns off the field that certainly you know, motivated this decision. You know, attendance at Fenway still isn't what it was in 2019 before the pandemic. You know, attendance is up across baseball, and a lot of people, you know, credit that to the rule changes and, you know, the pitch clock and whatnot. And I think that has, you know, played a part. But a big thing people forget was the lockout last year. So that lockout going into the 2022 season made it very, very difficult or basically impossible for teams to sell advanced tickets. So that lockout started, if I remember correctly, middle end of November, December, and went to March. So normally, in a normal offseason, that's when you're selling season tickets, your group packages, your partial season tickets, advanced tickets, you're selling all that shit. When you can't sell that stuff uh, until basically March, you're relying on walk-up. So that hurt the industry a lot last year. So the fact that the Red Sox are still down from that, that's still basically even from where they were last year, not good. You know, TV ratings aren't good. Just the lack of interest. I mean, even like over the last few years, I remember asking Sean McAdam when he was still at the Boston Sports Journal, you know, you know, basically, why don't any of the radio stations talk about the Red Sox anymore? And they really don't. You know, you watch any of the, you know, you know, com, you know, NBC Sports Boston, the Sunday night, you know, shows on, you know, four, five, and seven. You know, the Red Sox are lucky to get a segment. Um, 
WEI, they're maybe a little better, but probably not that much. I don't know how much uh, Gresham Fourier talk Red Sox. You know, Adam Jones a little bit, but, you know, the, the team, you know, uh, will it ever be the, the frenzy that it was in the 2000s where every game was sold out, where they were charging people to watch Red Sox games at movie theaters? Probably not. But it shouldn't be as dead as it is either, especially where the sport's having a little bit of a rebound. I mean, that Dodger game I went to, and a lot of these games at Fenway Park, the visiting fans take over the park, like right field. Like if you ever, anyone who watches like, you know, European soccer, where, you know, these European countries, they're small, so it's easy for trans to fans to travel to visiting games. Each stadium, there's like an away section. So like the visiting team has like an allocation of tickets and their fans all sit together. That's kind of what the right field grandstand and right field box at Fenway's turned into. That's like the that's like the away section of Fenway Park, and they, and those people they drown out whatever Red Sox fans are there. And then this week with that Yankee series, that Monday night game that was rained out, going into the Monday game, tickets on the secondary market were going for five bucks. And then when the game got rained out and was made up Tuesday afternoon, one dollar. The ticket fees were probably ten times the price of the actual ticket to get in. I mean, I gave I gave a little bit of thought to going for a dollar. Um, if I wasn't busy, maybe I would have. Um, but you know, those are those are challenges the Red Sox have, and I talked about how bitterly divided the fan base is. You know, people who wholeheartedly supported Bloom, people who were highly highly critical of Bloom. I mean, I was critical, but I thought I was I strive to be fair I try not to be too far that way with it but they do have off the field issues if they want people invested in this team again even to what it was five years ago in 2018 or the mid 2010s it's not even that anymore so that's what they're confronted with and this offseason is an inflection point so the luxury tax reset again you know, they reset it in 21, went over 22, reset it again. So if they go over, it's going to be the lightest penalties. And they have clear needs. It's pitching. It is pitching. It is pitching. It is pitching. So they need to take that money they have. I think it's 40, 43 million under the luxury tax, plus whatever they, how, however much they feel comfortable going over. And they need to use it on pitching. That number five system. They need to use prospects to trade for pitching. Like if I'm, like if I had a board for the 2023 lineup, I have a hole at number one starter. Bayo is my number two. I have holes at three and four. And if you want Cutter Crawford and/or Tanner Houck to be the fifth guy, fine. So they need to get a top end, top of the market. Red Sox haven't gotten top of the market anything in a long ass time. A top line starting pitcher a middle-of-the-rotation guy, and then ideally another guy who can eat innings. And they're going to have to expend resources to do it. So would Haim have made that prospect trade? You know, the the Bloom supporters, they seem to kind of operate under this assumption that you know there'd be like this this turning point. The, flip, the switch would be flipped. That Haim would be aggressive. And I saw no evidence that he was going to do that, was capable of that, that, that it was in him. Maybe that was in the Red Sox thinking when they made this move. Um, and then could he close deals for premium free agents? 
I mean, he couldn't close deals for Zach Eflin, Andrew Heaney, Mitch Haniger, among others, last offseason. Um, Nate Evaldi, don't forget that one. And and I've talked to people, well, you don't extend for those guys. Okay, fine. The problem is, all right, if you if you refuse to extend for Zach Eflin, you refuse to extend for Andrew Heaney, you let them go to other teams for roughly the same offer, you don't want to extend for this guy, don't want to extend for this guy, then all of a sudden you don't extend for anyone. It's the middle of December, you have no pitching, and you're left with just Corey Kluber. You have to extend for somebody. You know, John Tomasi has made this metaphor multiple times that Hein Blooms was the guy who, when he when he wanted to buy the house, he wanted to win the bid by one dollar. I think there's a lot of validity to it. Um, you know, the Red Sox haven't used their financial muscle in too goddamn long. You know, be the biggest guy in the locker room for once. Don't hide in the corner, slipping your shorts on underneath your towel. Let it flop out there. Show it off. That's what the Red Sox need to do. They need to be the Red Sox again. You know, 1998. Dan Duquette traded for Pedro Martinez. And at the press conference, he said, the Red Sox are back. We need the Red Sox to be back. I don't expect them to spend like Steve Cohen. I don't even necessarily expect them to spend like the Dodgers. But they need to stop being small. They need to start thinking big. And look, I'm not saying to make signings or make trades just to get fans excited, just to win the press conference. But you can still get good players to get the fans excited. Get get star players to get fans excited. I mean, you go to a Red Sox game, you barely see anybody wearing a shirt for anybody on the team anymore. It's You see Pedroia, you see Veritek, you see Ortiz, you see Manny, you see Pedro. Pedro hasn't pitched for this team in 19 years. You might see a Devers. He might be the one guy. You still see plenty of Mookie Betts. I wore my number 50 when he came home. You see plenty of number twos for Xander. And also, the way this team has been run the last five to ten years, you know, why would you buy anybody currently on the team's jersey? You don't know if the front office is going to get rid of them. Devers has zero, does not have a no-trade clause. I was trying not to say no-no-trade clause. Devers, not a no-trade clause. Doesn't have 10-5 rights till 2027. They could trade Devers tomorrow. Nothing stopping them. Maybe the new GM will want to trade Devers. Uh, yeah. Good luck with that. All right, well, the last GM you know, traded our best player. Maybe the new one will too as his first move. So in terms of who the next GM is going to be, you know, it's going to be, in some ways, it's a plum job. You have prospects. You should have money. Ownership should give you money. They have money. Ownership should allow you to spend the money. And this team should be set up to compete quickly. Now, the division's difficult. The Orioles are going to be good for at least the next three, four years. Maybe Tampa takes a step back at some point because they have 85 pitchers, you know, recovering from Tommy John surgery. Their best position player is a pedophile. Um, the Blue Jays, perennial underachievers. The Yankees are adrift in the wilderness. So maybe there's a path. You know, if you're a smart, self-confident baseball executive, you could probably envision a path where you could put your mark on the franchise and, you know, get them back to, to where they should be. Because I've said this from, I said this by the first episode, my minimum expectation is a Red Sox fan. 
compete for the playoffs every year, be in it in September. So, like, in August, as they were clinging to the wild card race, you could at least, you know, watch the standings. Okay, who do we need to lose? Who's playing who? Who do we need to, you know, are we picking up ground, losing ground, the scoreboard watching thing? Like, I need to be doing that in September. And and really, think about it. Competing for a third wild card in this watered-down, crappy, current baseball playoff format, you're competing for sixth. All right, maybe if the... Central champion is particularly crappy or competing for fifth. That's not a very high bar for what is should be a high payroll, big market team. And if John Henry is sitting there saying, you know, okay, we're, we're middle of the pack in payroll. You're stuck with Chris Sale, but you still have 160, 170 million to spend. And the other than Sale, the other 25 guys on the roster are your guys. And we're running out of pitching in August. If John Henry is, you know, sitting in his, you know, James Bond villain, you know, torture room and asking himself that, I can't blame him necessarily. I think that's not entirely unfair. You know, Bloom certainly was handcuffed to a degree in terms of, you know, the the big budget signings. You know, I don't think ownership was going to let Bloom sign Justin Verlander last offseason if he was so inclined to try to. But at the same time, if if he offered, you know, the the metaphor, so next segment is um, discussion with Cousin Adam. I I told Cousin Adam, if, you know, yes, Bloom has different financial constraints, certainly than Dombrowski, certainly than Theo. But if he offered Zach Eflin an extra five, ten million bucks to get that deal over the line, I think John Henry would bat an eyelash. If he had signed Tommy Pham before the season and had a competent major league outfielder instead of a sinkhole in right field, you know, I don't think Henry would have, you know, bat an eye. So who knows? Maybe the game has changed. You know, I operate under the assumption that you know a decent baseball executive should at least be able to find replacement level players, one win players for short money. Maybe that's harder than it used to be. You know, you know, maybe if, you know, your roster is constructed in such a way, you're doomed to have Yu Chang as your your best shortstop even though he's striking out 35% of the time and hitting a buck 70. Maybe that's just the way the game is now. I don't believe so. But <laughs> maybe it's more like that than I thought. Um, so from that aspect of it, it's a good job, but of course, you know, certainly this job could be viewed as the proverbial poison chalice. Okay. Yeah. You get to run a marquee franchise, but if nothing else, this ownership has shown themselves to be ruthless. The last four, three GMs have all gotten four years. Exactly. Um, Terry Francona, the winningest manager in the history of the franchise, Smeared out the door in the owner's paper. Um, yeah, just countless, countless examples. And, you know, in some cases, ruthlessness is required. In certain some cases, it's not. And if you're, you know, an aspiring GM, up-and-coming baseball executive, or really what they need is an experienced GM. I'll get to that in a minute. If, you, like, if you're a GM at another club, is the Red Sox enough of an allure to know that you're just on borrowed time. 
you know, with any executive or coach, I, I've heard this quote that, you know, uh, I forgot what the quote was. Basically, we're all going to get fired. We just don't know when. So there's that aspect of it, but feels like these guys, the Red Sox owners, particularly ruthless about it for sure. Um, but more than anything else, they need somebody with experience. You know, Haim was a first-time GM in over his head in a lot of ways. Didn't have a lot of experience on his staff either. I mean, most GMs, chief baseball officers, what have you, have assistants who have been GMs before or senior advisors who have, who have been GMs before. You know, Dan Duquette, for example. When, he, when the Red Sox hired him, Mike Port was the assistant GM under Lou Gorman. Duquette kept him on. Actually, Mike Port was technically the interim GM when uh, Henry fired Dan Duquette in 2002. But Mike Port was the former GM of uh, the, Calif- the then California Angels. That 1986 team, he was the GM. Dan Duquette's other assistant was Lee Thomas. Lee Thomas was the GM of the 93 Phillies. You know, that, that team, you know, was an NL pennant winner. Were they chemically enhanced? Fuck yeah, they were. But he had experience. He knew what he was doing, even Theo. So when they made Theo the GM, Larry hired uh, Bill LaJoy, the architect of the 84 Tigers, one of the best teams of the 80s, to be like a senior advisor. And then, you know, LaJoy was in his 70s when they hired him. I think he was 72. Uh, then as LaJoy kind of slowed down, you know, Hyam brought in Allard Baird as an assistant GM. Allard Baird was the GM of the Royals. Ties to the area. I think it was a Mass or New England native. And even Brian Cashman. Brian Cashman, you know, he's been a GM for 25 years. Yankee fans want to ride him out of town. I don't blame them necessarily. He brought in Brian Sabian as an advisor. Brian Sabian, New Hampshire guy. He was a longtime GM of the Giants from, I want to say, the mid-90s up until the mid-2010s. Like that, that those three championships in six years, that was basically him. And then by like the mid 2010s, he kind of moved upstairs, took a little bit of a step back, and now he's a senior advisor to the Yankees. Who did Hyam have? Nobody. You know, he had a bunch of people that have been there forever, like Brian O'Halloran, his titular GM, who basically was the number two. Brian O'Halloran has been with the Red Sox for 22 years. Eddie Romero, been with the Red Sox a long time. Raquel Ferrer, one of the other assistant GMs, she's been with the Red Sox for over 20 years. Probably, I think, think as long, if not longer, than, than, than Brian O'Halloran. In a lot of ways, the Red Sox organization is still very, very much Theo's organization. A lot of people there who were there when he was there. Because if you think about it, Theo left, they promote Sherrington, you know, an attempt at, at continuity. Sherrington, le- you know, left or was pushed out. Dombrowski came in. The only hires Dombrowski made were Frank Wren. Again, Dave Dombrowski, a guy who had been a baseball executive at that point for over 30 years, brings in a former GM to be his number two. But he kept basically other than him, and he brought in Tony La Russa as an advisor, and he also brought in La Russa to help Alex Cora, by the way. But other than those guys... He basically kept the same organizational structure in place, and he just kind of sat on top of it. Now, one of the criticisms of Dombrowski was him and Wren were off doing their own thing while the rest of the baseball operation was doing their thing. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. Maybe that was a factor. Maybe it was not. But point is, 
continuity there. And then when Haim came in, you know, he's hired a lot of analysts. You know, if you remember that John Henry interview, he was complaining, you know, about how much he had to pay all these guys, all these people, you know, analysts. Try not to use the word nerd. Um, but again, you still have, you know, you know his GM, his number two, Brian O'Halloran, been in the organization for our Eddie Romero, Raquel Ferrer, and there are other people. Mike Reichardt, I think, has been there a long time. So, Theo's th- fingerprints are still all over this organization. And, you know, Sam Kennedy poured cold water on Theo coming back. Uh, you know, Jared Carabas said it wasn't zero. You know, I could see maybe, maybe Theo being interested if he had a particular desire to move back to Boston. He's from here. Maybe he wants to come home. You know, he probably wouldn't want to be doing the day-to-day grind. Like, he doesn't want to, you know, troll the waiver wire looking for a relief pitcher or, you know, looking for the pitching coach in A and, you know, hiring scouts. And there's a lot that goes into running a baseball operation that a lot of people don't know about. But obviously the most important part is the Major League roster, which a lot of the iBluminati don't understand. Um but, you know, maybe Theo would want to come back to Boston, want to, you know, oversee the operation while someone else does the nitty-gritty. But that, even to me, that's a long shot um, at best and would take a lot of money and a lot of other things. Um, So I, I want somebody with experience. Or if it is a first-time GM, if they, think, if they look for the next Theo, surround that person with experience. You know, Dan Duquette is sitting out... I don't know if he still lives in Western Mass, but if he, if Dan Duquette is sitting out Western Mass, have him be a senior advisor. I'm not saying make Dan Duquette the GM, but you know, give Dan Duquette a seat at the table. Let the new young GM bounce ideas off Dan Duquette. If Dan Duquette sees the new GM do something stupid, he can interject and offer advice. I wouldn't hate that necessarily, but you know, somebody like that. That's what they need to do. Um, you know, some of the names out there, I don't want to go too far into the names because we're going a little bit long as it is, um, but certainly worthy of an episode. Um, I think I'm going to wrap it up for now. Over the next days and weeks, some names will emerge and we'll talk a little bit more about those names. Uh, but this is a big off season. I mean, every off season's big. It's kind of a cliche, but this is a particularly big one. If they're going to compete next year, they need to they need to go after the big fish. No more trolling, you know, no more digging for clams or trolling or well, I love I live on the coast, but you can tell I know nothing about fishing. But yeah, that'll wrap it up. Next up, we'll uh, discussion with cousin Adam about the bloom firing. Uh, thank you everyone for listening. Please be sure to like, rate, and review the Fenway on Fire podcast. I will do my best to record more frequently. I think once we get to the off season and we have some off season news, we'll um, go from there with uh, more regular episodes. And, and again, what happened today? Did Haim do a great job? No. Was everything has everything that's gone wrong the last four years been Haim's fault? Absolutely not. You know, people take a nuanced view of the situation. You know, be respectful, be kind. Jesus fucking Christ, sound like a Christmas card, but you know, maybe I'm maturing as a person. I, I don't know. But, you know, this is an organizational failure. It is. 
That's kind of a cliche. I probably overused that term on the podcast, but what happened today? It's a systemic organizational failure. And Hyam was a piece of it, not blameless by any means. I had my issues with him. We talked about them today. I've talked about them, you know, all year. But, you know, good dude, in over his head, set up to fail. So, wishing Hyam nothing but the best. Yo. Yo. All right, we are recording. We have Cousin Adam back on the Fenway on Fire podcast talking about this huge news. I am Bloom out as the chief baseball officer of the Boston Red Sox. So, Adam, when you found out the news, what, what were you doing? What was your reaction? <laughs> oh, let me set the scene for you. So I'm on my lunch break and I'm just washing some dishes. I have the sports hub on and I hear their little uh, oh, breaking news sounder. So I get, I grab my phone off the island and it's behind me. And I, I put it on the window above the sink. I turn the volume up so I can hear it. And I'm thinking this is probably nothing big. It's like Trent Brown getting put on IR. They were just talking about him and, and whatever. And then, and I, so first off, they really pissed me off because they kept fumbling with it and being like, <laughs> oh, um, so I see one report um, and yep, he's he's legit. Oh, what about do we see any other? And I'm like, oh, my God, just shut the fuck up and say what it is. <laughs> and then they finally said it. Bloom fired. And I screamed at the top of my lungs like Daniel Bryan. Yes, yes, yes. Probably <laughs> 15 times. The woman watching Abby, who is. My wife's former co-worker, who's now retired, probably thinks I'm a fucking lunatic because I didn't explain why I did that for like several hours. And it was just just total, just utter joy. I'm like, I called my mom. I was texting you. I, it, it just it, the happiest day of my life since the birth of my second daughter, which was two years ago. <laughs> oh, wow. So I was on the phone with my old boss talking about um, something, you know, in my current uh, company I'm working with. And then like I get off the phone with him and I see the text from you and like other people and I'm going on Twitter. So like, like the smoke was starting to gather within the last like week or two. You know, the first kind of inclination that you heard was um, Jared Krabs, the baseball hour name redacted saying that Haim was trouble, that nobody he talked to connected with the team thought he'd be back, which was kind of a surprise. Because, to be honest, the 2023 team, like, my expectations were so low. Like, I thought this would be, like, a 70-75 to win team. They have exceeded them. Yep, same. Yep. So, based on that, you know, I thought, you know, he probably would be back. And just the other thing, too, is ever since they let Dave Dombrowski go, it's it's almost been like one just disappointment after the next, like from this baseball team. Like, like, like I remember when uh, Devers signed listening to a name redacted and Jared said, you needed a dub. We needed a W. You just had so few W's as Red Sox fans. Now, if there's anyone fans of like the Rockies listening to us, you'll complain about the Red Sox and, you know, them disappointing us. I get it. You're not wrong, but still, you know, as a fan, it's just, you know, especially when you're used to you know the team, you know, behaving or being run in a certain way, 
and then they stop, and it's just one shit sandwich after the next. Like, I just thought, like, like when Frank the Tank yells that Billy Epler is going to be the Mets GM for the next hundred years. That's kind of how I felt. Yeah, and like honestly, and to use the Rockies comparison, like they're a small market team, so it's like, yeah, like they disappoint you constantly, but you kind of know that going in they they didn't go from what the red sox were with this big market powerhouse that spends money but also has a good farm system to just um we're okay yep our farm system's depleted now and we're not going to spend money at all we're just going to act like a mid-market team yet we have all of the resources it's not like john henry went bankrupt he's not mark davis who has no money uh, they're oh, no, still money. It's an printing money over there. Well, you are appreciating the Red Sox. <laughs> even, you know, even if you know their revenues are down, they're still worth more than they were 20 years ago. Liverpool certainly worth probably five, six, eight x what he paid for it out of bankruptcy. You know the Penguins they just bought. So yeah, you know, yeah, and like Fenway Park itself, like that's a like a, a basically a concert venue now like in the summer when they're not there yeah. you know they have big big acts going there and they bang out that place night in and night out and then they got the little music hall that's attached to it that you can use that year round mm-hmm. for concerts like they have the resources they were just not using them and now you hear all this stuff trickling out like you know bloom had a deal to, to trade chris sale and they were going to take all the money and Oh, he didn't like the prospects. It's just a complete and utter shit show for four plus years. Like, if that's true, like, as soon as Henry found out, he should have fired him. Like, it is so just unbelievable. Like, I like literally, it's unbelievable. Like, I like I don't doubt Bradford's report. Jared Carabas said the same thing. He quote tweeted that tweet and goes, "This is what I said on Name Redacted," and I had Jake bleep it out. <laughs> yeah, and um. And Jimmy Stewart on the on uh, the baseball hour said he got texted about it yesterday. Also, that's a fireable offense. Just that alone is a fireable offense. I don't doubt the sourcing, but I am not a stupid guy. Like if you could get off the Chris Sale contract, like I, I, I said this to someone else that if you got the backup catcher on the Dominican summer league team, the sixteen year old in some other teams, you know, Dominican complex is probably never going to get off the island. You take it just to get off the money. You would think so, right? But also, you got to think of it this way. Like, they they don't want to go out and sign another pitcher. They already got this guy in-house. And then, so they're like, oh, well, maybe he'll come back and be better. Because that's just, you know, it's kind of whole, their whole trade deadline philosophy of, uh, we'll just let the injured guys come back and hope and pray. So I, I I don't know, and, and and also he the the part of that report they were saying like he didn't like the prospects coming back. I could totally see him doing that. He looks sounds like he torpedoed an Alex Verdugo deal for the same reason. Yeah, um, if you think about it, though, you know since Bloom has been here, you know he inherited the 2018 rotation. You know, granted some of those guys like Price, uh, Porcello. They were, you know, near the end. So, okay, they needed to be replaced. But then you had guys like Avaldi, Erod, with some gas left in the tank that they didn't replace. Yep. And, and the replacements, mm-hmm. literally, it's been a rotation put together by Hope. You know, all right, we know James Paxton is coming off of Tommy John. We'll, do we'll pay him to rehab. 
If he looks good, then we have this two-year option where we get him for two years for short money. Bearing in mind that even before the Tommy John, James Paxton had been on the injured list every single year of his career at least once and had never thrown 160 innings in his career. That was the guy Bloom bet on. You know, Garrett Richards, another injury-prone guy. You know, he's promising when he first came up with the Angels, but it had been a few years since he had been that guy. And actually, ironically enough, I was at that game where when he was his first or second year with the Angels where he blew out his, I think his Achilles covering first base. But that's a guy they bet on. They bet on Walk, and that actually worked out okay. He only gave you 130 innings, but there were 130 pretty good innings. But then when it came time to sign him again, they showed basically no interest. Mm-hmm. Signed Corey Kluber instead. Okay, Kluber took the ball and posted for the Rays last year, but he was their number five starter. He was in that like 14, 15 inning uh, playoff game against the Guardians. He was the last guy out of the pen. He was the opening day starter this year for the opening Boston Red Sox. Starter this year. Remember, I took him in the last year for a fantasy draft. Yes. Just by joke, I picked up an opening day starter in like round 30 or whatever the hell it was. And Kluber, okay, he posted last year. He had his own lengthy injury history, 37 years old, throwing 88 miles an hour even last year. So tons of red flags there. He was the one guy they got. He completely flamed out. Um, then you had young guys who were kind of tweeners. Nobody knows if they if they could start or not. You know, Tanner Houck, you know, pitched uh, game one of the doubleheader today, actually threw six shutout innings. I don't know if you saw the game. He got in trouble in the fifth, facing the lineup a third time. Cora went out, talked to him, left him in, got him to finish the inning, got him up over 100 pitches. You know, maybe you make him your number five next year, hope he figures it out, but jury's still out if he can start. Whitlock, I was willing to get more than willing to give Whitlock a chance to start, but the jury was out on him going into this year. Now I think the verdict has come back. He can't do it. No, he has to be a bullpen guy. I never really wanted him to start because I just feel like every time they take these guys out of the bullpen that are good and they try to make them starters, it, it, it doesn't work. Like, I don't know. You look at Daniel Bard. That was a complete nightmare. Obviously, he's got some me- clear mental health issues that, that contributed to that. Yeah. And then you've seen it with Whitlock. I know Papelbon was kind of a little different. He was a starter, and they ended up making him a closer. But he was clearly way better as, as a bullpen closer guy than he would have been as a starter. So, I don't know. I mean, the thing is, most guys, if you put them in the bullpen, do pitch better. I mean, look at Nick Pavetta, who's the one guy in this team with a track record of health and durability. He got bounced out of the rotation due to performance. He had an ERA over six. Pitched awesome out of the pen, even as like a bulk guy. Uh, but, you know, that kind of goes to the point where you put a guy in the pen, generally they're going to pitch better. Um, it's just, you know, if you, if a guy can start, especially where the Red Sox are, where they've refused to invest you know, money in starting pitching, they're not really drafting starting pitching. Um, yeah, so that's really what torpedoed the season. You know, I said it in you know, like February when I named an episode of the show, how many injured pitchers does it take to build a rotation? Evidently seven wasn't enough. You'll get to the point where you're four and a half out. You have a one run lead and the only, you know, healthy rested arm was Kyle Barraclaw. And and you had to leave him out there to die in a game you were leading a game you had to have. It's a, it's a tale as old as time. You need starting pitching. You need arms. You can't just do what they tried to do this year. I mean, 
it, it, it's just reprehensible, like to just have a starting rotation or just an entire pitching staff, like what they have. It's just with the resources that they have to have that is just it's a fireable offense. And it finally came to fruition. And literally the way they built the pitching is the Tampa Bay way. And now maybe some people might think, you know, the, the you know, the, you know, the whole Tampa thing was overplayed, overrated, unfair, whatever. But I was talking to someone who was, I am supporter and, you know, and I think my point was, well, you know, a fair criticism is only having one pitcher who might hit 150 innings, which would be Brian Bayo and two having the worst defense in the stat caster. This is a, I'm on a Slack channel with a bunch of baseball nerds. Um, uh, the person who's Proheim came back and said, yes, criticism to the defense fair criticism. One is because that's how Tampa does it. And I'm like, really? And then I looked like the 2021 raise, the 2019 raise one guy over 150 innings, then just patching it together. So maybe it works if you have the pipeline of arms that Tampa does, but the Red Sox clearly don't. And one of the areas where I think that the, the hardcore bloom supporters, the I bloom naughty have gone wrong is just the inability to differentiate what the plan is, what somebody says they're going to do and how they're going to do it. Like it's one thing to have the Tampa philosophy, but then it's another whole separate thing to implement the philosophy correctly and successfully. So even if he could have maybe tried to, patch it together with Bayo and a bunch of old guys and injured guys and scrap heap guys and, you know, fringy, you know, five, six starter types like the Rays do. Well, if he, if that was the plan, it, it clearly didn't work. I mean, cause you're in August and you're teetering and you run out of starting pitch or you were run out of pitching. The bullpen is shot. Right. And like, honestly, the Tampa Bay way, I, I don't really think it works. I mean, it gets you so far, right? Because they they just yeah they they they're always good every year. They make the playoffs, but they can't seem to get over the hump. And I, I'm just not a fan of of watching that style of pitching, like the opener, like one guy comes in and pitches for an inning, and then another guy comes in for four. These guys are on the team for a couple of years, and then they're gone. It's just like this revolving door of, of arms that in, you know, I mean, yeah, a lot of them are good in Tampa, but they flame out. I, I don't know. I like what we grew up on. You get four or five guys in a rotation that can give you five, six. Well, back in the day, it was seven or eight innings. Yeah. And, and like that, I, I just feel like that's a better way to, to be successful. I know now like they, they do less innings, which is ridiculous because they have so many more injuries. Um, that's, that's a whole different other discussion, but it, it, I just find that to be a more entertaining product too. Like, I, I just don't care for the way that Tampa like runs their operation. Yeah. And, you know, and, and the way the game is now, I mean, you know, if you have like double headers or a guy's on the 15 day IL, you might have to do it once in a while. Right. Fox did it for six weeks with essentially two to three man rotation. It's fucking embarrassing. <laughs> yeah. Could you imagine that in 04? Could you, oh, 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 seven, oh, not any of those, like those teams back then. Like they, oh, I can't. <laughs> no. Oh, four, they had five guys. They, you know, I mean, that was rare even back then where you had five guys basically make all 162 starts. I think, I think they had one guy make a spot start game 162. I think Byung Young Kim might've had a couple spots, but other than that, it was P 
Pedro, it was Schilling. It was Wakefield, it was Lowe. It was Bronson Arroyo every five days. Um, and, yep. then, and if you look at the teams that are successful, like Seattle, you know, um, Atlanta's had a lot of injuries um, in their rotation. But, I mean, the, the teams that are up there, you know, they're, they're, they're certainly getting more out of their starting pitching than the Red Sox have. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I looked it up today. Um, they were tied for 26th in Major League Baseball in quality starts. The only teams that were below them were Kansas City, Oakland, two historically bad teams. Uh, I think Colorado and De- they were tied with Detroit. I think Colorado was the third team that was behind them. Something like that. I mean, it, that's just I, I get Haim had parameters that he had to work under. Ownership wanted him to cut payroll. In a lot of ways, you know, some of the points that the Bloom supporters make are valid. You know, the, the way the Red Sox have cut payroll, you know, stayed under the luxury tax three out of the last four years. All valid stuff. You know, he inherited some bad contracts, but here we are in 2023. The only bad one left is Chris Sale. So I think that excuse has lost a lot of its, you know, kind of uh, oomph behind it. But for the resources that he has, that he's been given, that he, you know, put forth, you know, applied to this 2023 team, you know, it's just the pitching staff to be what it is. It's just not good enough. It's not. It's not, and the problem is, is he, there's not enough focus put on the the big league club itself. Like, you have resources to to make them, you know, more competitive, compete, go and in, go into the playoffs, and you you choose not to do that. And it doesn't take resources to draft. Drafting's free. Newsflash: It's free. It does. You don't have to sign a draft. You don't have to yeah. sign anything to make a draft pick. I mean, you do have to sign the draft pick at some point. But I think you get what I'm trying to say. And, and it's just like he's too focused on the minor leagues and it just in ignoring the big league club. And I think that was his ultimate downfall because you had opportunities to improve it and you, you choose not to do it. You just choose not to do it. You, you act like you're Danny Ainge, Trader Danny and, and the other the other guy on the, the end of the other line doesn't want to pick up the phone. You know, so yeah. Yeah, that's certainly uh, the narrative that's starting to get out there. And you heard it a little bit, too, um, kind, of, kind of whispers, you know, that uh, Heim was getting that rep- reputation. Um, you know, and my thing, too, is, you know, look, I have no problem mocking ownership. So I was talking to someone else today. They thought Bloom was getting all of the blame and someone who doesn't live, live in, in Boston. And I'm like, no, plenty of people blame ownership. Um, so clearly ownership wasn't going to let Heim go out and sign Justin Verlander. That's assuming that Bloom wanted to, but for example, all right, you're not going to let some let you know let the GM spend you know 45 million on one guy. Okay, that sure, 100. I believe it. Got it. Do you think John Henry w- w- would have batted an eyelash if you know he gave Zach Eflin an extra five to ten million bucks to get that deal over the line? That's the guy who signed with Tampa, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Like it, it, they were talking about this earlier. Like. So he's what he's from that area. He wants to go home. So if the offers are the same, he's obviously going to choose Tampa and not to mention, they're just a better team. So if you really want the guy, you're going to have to kick in a few extra bucks to sweeten the deal. He's be like, Hey, come here. But if you can't just go in at the same offer, you're going to lose every time. 
yeah, and that happened with a whole slew of guys last off season. Um, and also to keep in mind, you know, places like Florida, Texas, they're tax free states where we have this new millionaires tax up here in mass. And, yes. mm-hmm. and a while back, I remember mentioning that to someone like, you know, uh, how they lost out. And Andrew Heaney was another guy, you know, he's a four or five guy with Texas, not having a great year, but he's taken the ball. He's posted. And, and uh, so I mentioned that to someone and like, well, these aren't the type of guys you extend for. Okay. But if you don't extend for anyone, you get left sitting there in the middle of December and Corey Kluber's the only guy you signed to bolster your rotation. Right. And I definitely think that that tax has an effect to a certain degree. Like Felger likes to dismiss it like, oh, please, like blah, blah, blah. No, it definitely does. It, it might not make a difference to like a Jalen Brown because he gets so much money. It's just like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Here you go. But like someone who's only getting a few million bucks, 10 million bucks, like and then it comes in and it takes like another million off. And now you're a million less just because of the state you're going to be working in mm-hmm. like players are going to take that into effect. You can, like you said, go to Texas, tax-free, go to Florida, tax-free. So, you know, it's like if you sign with some someone in, in California, they got to kick in a little extra more because their income taxes is like 10%, something yeah, wild. California and New York, so that's what the Red Sox are going to have to do when, when signing these guys. They're going to have to factor that in, you know, offer a little extra to, you know, to make up for that difference. And, you know, that's just kind of, you know, one, one thing, but just the unwillingness to really, you know, put the nuts on the table and really this off season, whether Bloom was here or not, it, it's an inflection point. I mean, you're a 500 team. You have a bunch of veteran guys, the Justin Turners, the Duvall's of the world, the Klubers of the world. They're coming off the books. I think I saw they had like 43 million to spend under the luxury tax. Then of course, you know, no reason they can't go over for the right guy. This is when, you know, the Red Sox need to be aggressive. And nothing High and Bloom has done at the major league level has been particularly aggressive. Okay, maybe Masataka, Yoshida, that might be the only example. But they need to go out there. They need to get these deals done. They need to play at the top of the market. Stop fighting over scraps and the injured guys and and I don't think Bloom was that guy. No, he's definitely not. And, and let's say the whispers are true, and I totally believe that they are, that he was getting the reputation of someone that um, agents, executives didn't want to deal with. I'm sure that got back to John Henry. John Henry probably heard that at some point and was like, all right, well, if he's already, you know, if they don't want to deal with him, then like, that's bad yeah. so like even though it doesn't matter how much money he has to spend if other executives and agents don't really want to deal with you like it doesn't matter how much money you have like it's you're just a detriment to it doesn't help I mean, like as much of it you could be the biggest pain in the ass in the world but if you offer the most money generally you'll, you'll get the player right but mm-hmm. when it's close or if you're trying to kind of you know figure out where the other side is at that's how a lot of negotiations work is you know a lot of it is pleasantries small talk trying to read between the lines and if you think the other person the person the other side of the table or the other side of the phone is just bullshitting you you know you're just you know you're you're going to be disinclined to to work with them and like for example like uh 
Kyle Schwab, right? Rob Bradford said this on, on the radio a year or two ago. This was after Schwarber signed with the Phillies. Schwarber got four years, 68 million. Had a good year last year. He's going to hit 40 home runs and hit a buck 50 this year. So say <laughs> what you will about the player. But supposedly, so he got four for 68. Supposedly, Haim offered him two years, 15 million per. So two years, 30 million total. Less than half. You're not even being serious. So if you're Schwarber's agent in that scenario, and Haim gives you just a ridiculous offer next time he calls you about another client like what are you thinking like this asshole again what the why are you gonna waste my fucking time right it's a disrespectful offer it's a slap in the face a more respectful thing to have done would have been not given offer at all and just say hey thanks uh we're we're moving in a different direction instead of giving this wildly insulting offer because like you just said it, it, it insults the player. It insults. It probably pisses off the agent. Like, what the fuck? Like, really? And they that agent's going to remember that mm-hmm. for his other clients. So now you've just fucked yourself with that agent. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's it's just it's bad business. It's just really. It, it, and I feel like it's it's probably part of, like of Heim's just his character. Like, he's just this nerd that doesn't really get people so he's he probably thinks he's not even doing anything wrong and would in reality yeah dude you just like and slap the guy in the face with that offer yeah you know i i think i am really is a good guy um, i'm not saying he's a bad guy but yeah. maybe he's not like maybe self-aware is not the right word but like doesn't get that like and doing something like that is is you know disrespectful or detrimental to you like yeah. i don't know so I, I think really what it is at the end of the day, and uh, Mike Lombardi's talked about this on his podcast a lot when talking about the Philly Philadelphia 76 Even though Lombardi's a football guy, he's also a huge basketball fan, huge Sixers fan. Uh, the the uh, Joel Harris, the owner, bought the, the 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 Washington Commanders, just described him as just an asset manager. And I think that's what Haim is. He's cons- you know he wants to win the trade, win the contract, and that just takes precedence over all else. If you yep. get all right, if I can't win the deal, well, we'll just we'll we'll just see if Bobby Dahlbeck can play first base. But this, that's how Danny Ainge operated around here for like the last half of his tenure here, really. Yeah, and he wasn't like that at the beginning. I think it was it was just something happened where after he got all those picks, yep. was, he had the picks, and he started you know, and especially starting drafting guys, just got too attached. Um, but then even like when he would like try to make trades in the season like no one wanted to deal with him like you know i don't know and he didn't make a trade for like the last five years he was here as, yeah. as the gm like his last trade as general manager or president of basketball operations of the celtics was the it trade and that was like 2016 i think or 2015 I forget yeah well the other thing with h2 is he, he he won so many lopsided trades that you know others yeah. were, were reticent to work with him yeah like age makes you an offer. It's like, what does he know that I don't? <laughs> that's that's true. That 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 is true. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I actually have the game on right now. They're losing five to three. Oh, Rafaela. No, off the end of the bat. Yeah, I don't have the Nesson app down here, so I have uh Fox tonight. Oh, it's on Fox. I didn't know that. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. National broadcast. I'm sure Fox is thrilled to have these two teams, you know, fight for last place. Yeah, I'll put it on then. I had no idea. I just assumed it was Nesson because it was Nesson earlier. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. Game one was Nesson. And then, uh, 
you know, Papelbon's probably halfway uh, on his way home back to Mississippi. Yeah, I ended up turning it off. Like, I didn't hear anything he had to say, although he said one thing briefly. And, but, and then they went right to core, and core was on for like 25 minutes, and then I just turned it off. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But anyway, so, you know, what, what do you want to see the Red Sox do this offseason and kind of going forward? they need to well they need to get pitching obviously as we've discussed in the past so whoever they bring in i don't want like another heim clone although it's probably going to be somebody you know along those lines they just need to go out and and bolster that rotation first and foremost i mean because they just have nobody they literally have nobody Start there, and then, I don't know, work on your defense because your defense is pathetic. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, so they have Bayo, so he's a, a two. Maybe he'll be a one someday, but they need a one. They need a three. They need a four. If you want to have one of Cutter Crawford or Tanner Huck be the five guy, fine, whatever. But they need to add two arms at least. So I, I agree with that. And then the defense – you know, that's, that's not going to, you know, having story, you know, for all, you know, will help. And maybe Raphael is your center fielder. Maybe that'll help a little, but they got to do, there are some other moves they got to make. We're going to have plenty of time to talk about it, but Adam, it's getting a little late. I know you're an early riser with uh, the two young ones, you know, under six at home. So I'll let you go, but uh, appreciate you uh, joining the show and fun as always. All right. Anytime, brother. Have a good one. All right. Later.